0: Talk podcast We have an exclusive interview with Ian Dark. Who, in addition to being familiar to American audiences for his work on ESPN during World Cups, Women's World Cups, and Euros, and U.S. men's and women's national team matches, is one of the most uh, famous commentators of the Premier League. Was with Sky when they began their Premier League coverage, or when the Premier League began play in 1992, called the very first. Monday Night football match on Sky with the Premier League that was QPR and Manchester City, and has done uh, various uh, commentary uh, around the globe in terms of uh, football and boxing. So it's our distinct pleasure this week on the podcast to have a exclusive interview with Ian Dark, who of course, is a big part of ESPN's current coverage of Euro 2020. So great to have you, Ian Dark, on the World Soccer Talk podcast. First thing I wanted to ask you about was, before you started broadcasting the Premier League for Sky, and, and you started right away with Sky when they got when the Premier League was formed, you were a radio broadcaster. What, what was that transition like from radio to, uh, to television?
1: People can see what's going on. They don't need you to, to tell them. They might need you to identify the players. But really, you're writing picture captions and... In a way, you're there to tell them something they can't see. So often when commentators and people who do my job uh, transfer, they're talking too much because they're used to talking non-stop on the radio. Silence is golden sometimes on television because you just don't want to be that bore in the corner droning on and on and on with statistics and all kinds of other paraphernalia that really the viewers don't want to know. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. Whereas in a radio broadcast, you have to do that. Uh, you you did uh, the first Premier League Monday night football match. The uh, uh, It was, ironically enough, Manchester City and Queen's Park Rangers. We'll uh, touch on those two teams later in the interview again. But uh, the transition to that, the new league, the Premier League, uh, the greatest show on earth, uh, so to speak, and... Uh, Evolving with the league through through the years of the Premier League, how, how do you feel? Commentary's changed in your uh, your own commentary about that league specifically.
1: Um, I don't think it's changed an awful lot, really. The job is the job is the same essentially, which is to to write captions uh, and just help the audience enjoy the match at home. You hope that you're you're adding to their entertainment. I was given some great advice once by, by an old commentator who said, remember you're a guest in somebody's living room uh, all the time. Don't be a boring guest, try to in, enhance. So that's, that's a good rule of thumb. And if you can introduce a bit of light and shade as well, that's good. Going back right to the beginning of of, of Sky Sports, when they started with the Premier League, they were a minority channel. A lot of people were annoyed because the games were not on terrestrial TV anymore. They were on a pay-per-view type of format. So we were under a
0: lot of pressure because there were a lot of people waiting with daggers drawn to rip holes
1: in the coverage. As it turned out, they liked the coverage and they were won over by it. But as, as announcers, we were under pressure really to, to deliver at that time. As it's gone on, the Sky Sports has become uh, a mainline operator really on the Premier League and is very much a part of the furniture. So think, things have changed, but the job really is still the same. And I get letters sometimes from young commentators starting out and they say, you know, give me, give me some advice. Well, the first advice really is to do your homework because 95%, maybe more of what we do is being able to identify the players. If you can't
0: do that, you're lost. You've commentated on matches, obviously for Sky and BT uh, in the UK, for a UK-specific audience, for ESPN, as we're, we're going to talk about uh, in this interview, for, for, for a US-specific audience. You've also, and I've caught you do, uh, uh, doing this uh, myself in my travels, you've also called a number of games for the global feed, the the world feed for the Premier League and Premier League productions. Do you approach those different audiences differently or is it still just the same sort of painting pictures uh, calling a match?
1: It's basically the the same job. If you're going back in time, I worked first of all for ESPN back in the 1994 World Cup and that was very much a pioneering operation. It was the first time I think that sport had been broadcast in the U.S without adverts, because FIFA said to the US, you can't have this competition if you're gonna plaster it with breaks for adverts. So <laughs> that, was, that was something quite different. And in those days, we were pretty aware that most of the audience weren't that switched onto the game. It was something new to them. It was a big deal that it was in the United States. They knew that, but they didn't know the game that well, I think, at that time, and I stress, at that time. Um, so I was being asked by the producers sometimes to re-explain uh, things like what the offside was, what a throw-in was—fairly basic stuff. Now I think there's a really educated audience in the United States, just as educated as the European audience. They've been watching it for years; they know the game, and so I would commentate in exactly the same way I think for the American audience, for the UK than the UK one, but. Maybe one little difference is I think, you know, we in Europe can learn a little bit from the way that American broadcasters broadcast because I think they do it with a little bit of extra energy and a little bit extra color as well. And one thing that's been stressed to me, and you never stop learning in our business, it was stressed to me when I went to ESPN is, you know, one of the producers said to me, you know, get me interested in this game. Make me want to root for one of these two teams. If I'm watching Poland play Greece in the World Cup, Tell me some stories that are, are going to involve me in the game. And I think that, that's that's a pretty good guide. So maybe you'd, you'd be looking to do that a little bit more for the, for the American audience because perhaps that's a little bit more of what they're used to.
0: Yeah, so that uh, dovetails perfectly into talking about 2010. I had... Uh, by this time, personally, I was very familiar with you through your Premier League work and also uh, global feed for for Premier League production. Saw you paired with Andy Gray on a number of big uh, 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 Premier League matches uh, when I would travel abroad. Uh, the 2010 World Cup was a big moment for U.S. broadcasting because uh, uh, you, among others, were brought over to call the matches in a in a style that that maybe people like I were more familiar and comfortable with than what. Uh, had traditionally been done in the U.S. and uh, right away you get that game, right? The Algeria game, end of the group stage uh, with Landon Donovan's goal. Uh, take take the listeners through that for a minute, and what goes through your mind when you know you have this epic moment and you're the one at the mic having to call it?
1: Well, the great thing about doing what we do and having a, a ringside seat on some of the great sporting theater is it's an ad lib essentially. You can't choreograph what is going to happen in front of you. So you have to be ready for all eventualities. And the thing you need really in that situation is gears. You have to know how big the story is as it unfolds in front of you. And going back to that game, which I was lucky enough to cover, you're quite right, the USA against Algeria and the situation Just to remind everybody, and I'm sure most of your your listeners know it only too well, but the USA was going out of the World Cup, unless they scored. It was something like the 93rd minute when Tim Howard got the ball. He throws it out to to the right wing. The attack develops. And I just had a rising sense of, as I was doing it, this is the last chance. This is the last attack. They've got to get it right. So my commentary was kind of staccato. I think when I watched it back, to just say who's got the ball and convey this sense of drama in your voice, and it built up and it built up until Landon Donovan, you know, unbelievably really put the ball in the back of the net. And I think then, as a commentator, you've got the license to go to ten on the Richter scale. So then you're just hoping, in that moment, that frenzied moment, that you find the right words and you do capture the moment. But in a way, you don't know really, until later, whether you have. I couldn't remember what I'd said at that time. (laughs) later,
0: when I started getting phone calls, people from radio stations in the United States
1: saying, tell us about that moment again. I said, well, I don't remember. (laughs) it It was much, much later that I heard it back again and played back that I thought, well, that seemed to go quite well and it, and it, it obviously got a, a, a massive response and I do think you know, it, I'm just incidental I only the guy talking about it. it was the team that did it it was the team that delivered and landed Donovan and Dempsey and, and the rest of them and, and Tim Howard I was just the guy lucky enough to describe it but I do think it was a big moment in the development of the game in the United States because I think it was um what do they call it? A, a light bulb. Yeah. I think a lot of people who didn't get the game got it. Okay, there've been no goals, but then there was this incredible, dramatic moment, which I think everyone cottoned onto and understood.
0: And so, a year later, you're in a similar position. World Women's World Cup semi-final. Abby Wombach scores that uh, incredible goal uh, in the 118th or 19th minute against Brazil. Uh, Similar situation, and and again, epic call. Uh, But I wanted to focus on 2012 for a minute with you. We talked about uh, QPR and Man City. He said we would get back to that. Uh, You and and Maca, Steve McManaman, took the American audience, and I think that was the first, really, like the first Premier League game that reached. Um, The masses in the United States. Obviously ESPN had been showing the matches for a few years, Fox as well, but the first really mainstream moment that launched the Premier League into being more than just a foreign football league to to the American audience and, and uh, 90 plus 4, 90 plus 3 you, you and MacCA the whole time uh, take us through that because you were calling the game specifically for a US audience Peter Drury did the world feed for that match and I think Martin Tyler did the UK uh, broadcast but um, I've I, I watched the match I'm a Manchester City fan in the interest of full disclosure I've watched the match over and over again um, through the years your, your call with Macca, and it was amazing the whole game, the whole broadcast, you, the two of you were really dialed in
1: well, it was an incredible day. You, you, you couldn't really script something like that happening. It was beyond belief. Uh, the script to be thrown back at you wouldn't. If you were a writer <laughs> trying to come up with something like that, there won't be a finish like that again. I think Martin Tyler, in his description of it all, said that you'll never see the like of this again, and he's right because what a finish to the season! Manchester City uh, uh, need to win. They're 2-1 down. It's already stoppage time. They can't get two. They <laughs> might get one for a consolation. Yes, Edin Dzeko scores. It's 2-2. Two, two. There can't be long left. It's over, surely. But no, <laughs> Aguero goes and gets that goal with basically the last kick of the season to take the title off Manchester United and give it to Manchester City. So, yeah, I mean, that again, you're lucky, really, that you're there for something like that and, and have the privilege really of describing it for people. What I do remember about that day is that Steve McManaman nearly failed a fitness test. He didn't fail many in his career, but he, his voice had nearly gone from the word go. So we had to give him um, a lot of throat lozenges to get him onto the air that day. Wow. <laughs> so he, 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 got, he got through it and... We got through it as well, and when we put the microphones down at the end, we just looked at each other and said, wow. And I tell you, you're right. You're spot on about saying um, that it was a huge moment for U.S. sport as well as U.K. sport and European sport, because it was hard to get the game onto the sports center, uh, the ESPN sports center. But the minute we put the microphones down, we got a request to lead the bulletin and do a five-minute package about everything that had gone on there. And I said, wow, this must really have resonated in the US because it went straight
0: to the top of the whole sporting agenda. Yeah, and that match had everything, for those who might not have seen it, including Joey Barton, who is a player I will admit I had been a big fan of when he played for Manchester City, and he had always had these off-the-field problems, but just going uh, <coughs> mad. And the way you called that was perfect, because that was the only way you could call a, an individual acting out like that on the pitch. But that that was part of the drama of that day. Um, With Joey Barton... Was a bit of a hothead. Let's yes, be honest about it, and was always
1: likely to do something stupid, and that was among the most stupid things he's ever done. There's his team faced with the possibility of relegation, and in a great position in the game, and he goes himself gets himself sent off to leave him with with ten players. So he was the luckiest guy alive, really. At the end of that, the Queens Park Rangers, not through
0: their own deeds, did manage to stay up because of results elsewhere. Yeah, just an epic day with all kinds of storylines. Nada Manua also, who's a colleague of yours now at ESPN, a player who come through City's Academy, had been a first-team player. Roberto Mancini didn't like him. He's the last guy defending when Aguero scores that goal for QPR. He had just joined them in January. So a lot of just stories that day. Uh, Moving on. You've been uh, and this is, I think, very unique among commentators. You've been able to be a analyst, a studio analyst or at least a studio guest on the ESPN FC program frequently the last several seasons. Uh, What's it like for you as a as a commentator kind of shifting to that analyst or even, you know, co-commentary role in uh, a studio program like that?
1: Uh, It's difficult, to be honest with you. you, You're right, it's not something that uh, you normally do, because as a commentator, you're calling the Uh, play-by-play. It's a different kind of job, but the job really when you're on ESPNSC is to shoot from the hip a bit with some predictions, uh, have a bit of fun with Dan Thomas and and Craig Burley and Stevie Nicol or whoever's on the show that night. Um, But I'm pretty aware that I'm mixing with some pretty uh, high quality ex-professionals and I'm very aware really that my contributions might be a little bit different to theirs. You're never gonna know more about the game, nor should you ever pretend to. I could watch a thousand games, I'd never know as much as somebody who played it at the top level, uh, like Stevie Nichols and and, and Craig Burley and Shaka and so on. So I'm always deferential to them. Their views count more than, than me, but I might be able to add something historic about it or editorial or some story that I picked up Um, so you have to contribute
0: in that way it's a fun show to do I love doing it How has uh, calling boxing matches through the years contributed to your uh, the way you call football matches or is it something completely different? I think it's something completely different really I mean it's still the art
1: of, of commentary it's still being entertaining illuminating the audience but it's um, you don't have the identification problem in boxing. The problem you do have in boxing is, knowing who's winning, you've got to give the audience some idea who, who might be winning the fight. And sometimes the judging might be rather different. <laughs> and particularly in some big fights in Las Vegas, we used to find that there was some quite odd judging. Uh, <laughs> people, follow, people who follow boxing will know what I'm talking about here. Um, so, so there was that, but when I used to cover boxing, I mean, it is a different sport because the accessibility to the athletes is is, is far greater. There tends to be a bit of a, a PR wall in front of the top players and managers now in football. In boxing, they want you around. They want to talk. They're trying to sell the fight. They're trying to sell the tickets, the pay per view, whatever it is. So you got pretty close to a lot, a lot of those famous boxing boxers and not many of them would turn you down for an interview and Mike Tyson could be a little bit difficult but I remember interviewing Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray Leonard and Floyd Mayweather and generally speaking they were you know they were pretty happy happy to talk particularly because they knew I was from the UK and they liked to build up their English fan base as well so it was it's a very different kind of sport cover but if you ask me between the two and football is my first love it always has been i i played the game from when i was a little boy i always wanted to be a player i wasn't good enough to be a a player so i'm lucky enough to be part of the game through the microphone
0: let's transition now to the to this euro tournament how different has it been for you and for your broadcast partner uh, uh stuart robson to be uh, covering a tournament that's uh, taking place without your studio, your production people, the normal thing you have in a major tournament. And when you've called matches previously for ESPN, uh, we've gone through the tournaments, right? 10, 11, 11 Women's World Cup, 14 World Cups, Euros and 12 and 16. Is, is it a different experience for, for the two of you being uh, away from the studio, being away from the, the usual production team and the big kind of tournament atmosphere you get uh, uh, in these sorts of summer tournaments? Yeah, it is. It, 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 it's a bit weird. It's a bit strange.
1: We are out on a limb. Normally, when you go to a big tournament, and I think, by the way, this particular one would have been different anyway because of Michel Platini's idea of staging it in yeah. what was originally 12 cities. It's gone down from that, of course. So it would have been a bit odd really. I hate the idea. It was a terrible idea in the first (laughs) place. It's an even worse idea in the middle of a pandemic because the fans can't fly around because of all the restrictions that are going on. So yes, Stuart and I, we are... We don't get to mix or go to dinner in the evening in, in uh, Bristol, Connecticut, where ESPN are based, with the with the team. Everybody else who's presenting the shows and doing some commentaries, a lot of them, of course,
0: off TV screen. So I hope the viewers are, are cutting uh, the commentators a bit of slack
1: with that, because often it, it's not easy doing it like that. So we've been lucky enough; we've done some games like that from London, from a London studio. But all the games at Wembley, we've gone to. Live, but we are aware that we are we are out on a limb. We are out in the ether. We're kind of in the, like an outer space <laughs> from the rest of our team. But uh, we're doing the best job we can.
0: Yeah, and how challenging? I mean, following up on that, how challenging in general has this tournament been? Because. Of the twelve cities are down. It's less than that now. Obviously, Dublin couldn't host, and, and a few other places. But it, it's it's a it doesn't have even with, without COVID. It it has kind of a different feel to it, right? Than it would normally if there's a host nation, or even Poland, Ukraine, Austria, Switzerland. Those are uh, adjoining countries. Yeah,
1: thank goodness that it's um, going back to being in one country next time in Germany. And that's going to be fantastic in in, in 2024. And that's how it should be, because you want the whole football family, the whole football world gathered in one place. And and part of it is is not just going to the games and covering the games and, and watching the top players. It's mixing with the journalists from other countries and the fans from other countries. And you don't get to do that when it's spread out all over the place. And I feel so sorry for the supporters because... They would love it, wouldn't they, to travel around Europe and you know, to be there and to mix and to have the football party. They haven't been able to have that. It's been great to have, you know, 45,000 fans like it was for England Germany this week. Uh, that, that's been fantastic. It, it's starting to feel a bit like old times, and I hope pretty soon we will be back to something like
0: normal. But uh, we can only keep our fingers crossed about that at the moment last question and obviously this is a dated thing by the time some people listen to this in the future we'll know the results but uh as someone who's broadcast the Premier League since the beginning in 92, and obviously a lot of Premier League players have won uh, major international tournaments with Germany or Spain or it- – well, not Italy. Italy had an all A team when they won the World Cup, but Spain, Germany, uh, France, et cetera. But what would it mean for the league and for the country in football uh, in, in the country if England did win this Euro? Well, I
1: think it would be a carnival. It would be incredible because, remember – I set the line yesterday in the, in the commentary, Germany had been in 14 major finals of the European Championships or the World Cup, yeah. England only won in 1966, you had to be pretty old to remember that, most of the fans have grown up really with heartbreak and failure and agonizing defeats and penalty shootouts, yeah, they love the Premier League, but you know, if you look around at an England game, you'll see flags from all the clubs, Not the fashionable ones from Stoke City and Portsmouth and and Wigan and Port Vale, Halifax, all over the country. So there is a kind of football fever anyway when a big tournament is on in England. That was racked up about 15 times with the win over Germany because really most
0: fans were dreading (laughs) that game and thinking, Oh no, not them again. It's all going to end
1: in tears. It didn't this time. So you can imagine the excitement and the hoopla and I think the problem the England players have and Gareth Southgate has really now is to, to get them back on an even keel and get their minds around the next game uh, against Ukraine. Yeah, it would be fantastic I think if England were to lift the European Championship. They never ever made the final. But I don't think anybody's counting any chickens and nor should they because we've seen surprises
0: of plenty already. Yeah. And and actually, last question now, follow up to that, Uh, having been around uh, Euro 96, which was hosted in one country and England made the run. Obviously, we mentioned Germany, uh, eliminated by Germany on penalties in, in the semis. Uh, is this does this feel similar, or does it feel differently because of COVID and the and the travel and and stadiums being half empty or, or more than half empty prior to the Germany match, or, or does it have the same sort of feel of football coming home and and the potential for England to win a tournament on home soil?
1: I think the party will get a lot more intense if England go too much further. They're already into the the quarter-finals, not quite the same, if I'm honest with you, because of the COVID restrictions, because most of the fans can't go to Wembley, they can't get the tickets, they can't really travel, um, so they're having to enjoy it all on television. Back in 96, it was a blazing hot summer, it was Gaza, in Terry Venables, and there was a feeling that they probably were the best team in the tournament, that year played really well and probably should have gone on to when it didn't, as it turned out, lost lost the penalty shootout. Um, but I think there is a rising excitement in England that just maybe the way the draw is working out, maybe this team could do it. And let's face it, I I know a lot of the rest of the world don't like England. They think England are arrogant and the whole football coming home thing is, well, it doesn't belong to them, it belongs to the world. It does belong to the world. Um, And and most of the world has got better at playing the game than England in recent times, which is why there would
0: be the big celebration if, if England, after all this time, were to lift the trophy. Thanks once again to Ian Dark for taking time out of his busy commentary schedule to spend a little bit of time with us. You can find us on the web at worldsoccertalk.com. You can interact with us at Twitter at worldsoccertalk. And until next week, enjoy your football.